So I'm here with writer John Buck and Emerson Green, and Chris Rhodes might be joining us. If he doesn't, then we'll hold off on talking about his argument on our stream, but if he shows up, we'll try to talk about it. But um, So we're going to talk about meager moral fruits and why it fails as an argument, and Emerson agrees with me now. And then about maybe some other things like the common consent argument. We'll get to that. So I don't know Chris if you guys pulled the to... same stunt when I I had Chris on my channel with necessary being, and he also just rolled in like forty minutes late. Um, even though we all agreed on the time, it's such um, a power move too. <laughs> it's like no, you will all abide by my time. Actually, <laughs> I'm starting to think it's intentional. I wonder if he's if his clock got set back because we started late, so now he's got to like reset the rolling in fashionably late clock. Yeah. But well, he's also 14 pretty... it's past his bedtime right now, so it's, it's also a factor. He's got to get, get under the covers and wait for his parents to go to sleep. Yeah, well, I've had a pretty crazy day. I won't go into details, but I'm glad I was able to make it. And do you guys want to talk about your channels or whatever, or does that not matter anymore? Yeah, I have a so I have a channel called uh, T Jump where I advocate something called jumpy and epistemology. Yeah, John made this really rude video about me once um, about my biggest blunders, but I'm still we've we've buried that hatchet. So I'm glad to be with you. I'm glad to be with you today. Yeah, you grew your hair out to it. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people didn't realize that was a fashion choice. I was shaving my head because I thought it looked cool, not because I'm balding. All right, John. Uh, I'd like to promote my channel where I debunk theism. Uh, it's called Counterapologetics. And, uh, I think that a lot of people, a lot of people, didn't realize that I was actually a theist. But I'm just, you know, trying to like lay out these arguments so that people can uh, get a better no, no. appreciation for the various positions. Yeah. Wow, you there. you seem like kind of like a pick me atheist. Like you're trying to like get theists to like clap you on the back for not being like the other ones or something. Well, a lot of people like have called me sort of like a crypto theist and like, dang, they nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm only putting forth these arguments because I know how bad they are just to make atheism look bad. Yeah. In fact, it's, yeah. So that's one of the main arguments that we're going to be discussing today, right? The meager moral mm -hmm. fruits argument, right? Right. You want to sort of lay that out, Emerson? Well, I guess, yeah. I mean, we were supposed to start with uh, the the unjust distribution of propensities to sin argument, um, but you know, Chris wants to wants to be late and make everyone wait for him. So, yeah, I mean, the two arguments I wanted to talk about: first one being meager moral fruits, like you mentioned, and then common consent or widespread theistic belief. Do you want to talk about widespread theistic belief first, actually? Because okay. I'm like. I like that. I'm so I'm officially tired of talking about the meager moral fruits argument. Um, eventually, I'll not be sick of it, and I'll uh, get around to responding to some of the videos people have made about it. But yeah, it's okay. Anyway. I understand it's not defensible, so go to the one that might be. <laughs> I also have a tendency to uh, get kind of irritated about it, and I don't want to start off on that foot. But um, anyway, um, common consent. So. Okay, this is going to be super annoying, but can we actually take another step back? And um, can I share my screen, actually? I, there's something that's kind of important to this, and actually also to the meager moral fruits argument. And um, um, kind of, you know, because isn't the theme of this kind of like lesser known arguments for uh, for theism? I mean, like, if we're talking about that, then um, this is going to be kind of important. As graphs. 
I have graphs. I made this visual aid one time. Um, this is just evidential complementarity, and anyone who saw my video about the argument from scale, uh, which roughly is the argument that universe big, therefore atheism, um, I talked about this in that video as well, and it, I called it evidential symmetry in that video, um, but I thought that was a little misleading um, because the strength of the evidence might not be symmetrical. But anyway, it's kind of a trivial point, but it's something that's disputed often. And if you're going to talk about like, you know, lesser known arguments, then this is maybe a helpful thing to have in mind. So um, it's kind of like a common notion of evidence is uh, like a probability raising notion of evidence. Like if an observation raises the likelihood of a hypothesis, then it's evidence for that hypothesis. So here we're saying observation O is evidence favoring hypothesis 1 over hypothesis 2, if and only if H1 assigns a higher probability to O than H2. So that would be like, you know, fine-tuning on theism or, um, you know, hiddenness on atheism. You know, if you think about it, like, if God doesn't exist, then of course he's hidden, you know, so like the very high probability of that on atheism. Um, and it's comparatively low, you know, so the hiddenness of God, if we take that as a datum, is going to be evidence favoring atheism over theism because atheism assigns a higher probability to that observation than theism. So the complementarity point is just that if it's the case that some observation is evidence favoring theism over atheism or just, you know, generically H1 over H2, then the negation of that, you know, not O, is going to be evidence favoring H2 over H1. So again, it, it just kind of follows, like, um, it's it's not really disputable. Like, if O is evidence for H1 relative to H2, then not O is evidence for H2 over H1. So I think this is kind of easy to see visually here. Like, um, if we're saying that this observation is, um, you know, evidence favoring H1, it roughly just means that um, H1 assigns a higher probability to that observation than H2. That's why it's evidence for H1 over H2. But another way of saying that is that H2 assigns a higher probability to not O than H1. So it's, it's really just two ways of saying the same thing. Um, so anyway, if you're wondering, like, hmm, is widespread theistic belief evidence for theism? Then you can imagine, hey, what if nobody believed in God? What if zero people <laughs> believed in God and I was, like, the only one? Um would that change my epistemic situation or would it be exactly the same? Anyway, so you can kind of flip things around like, okay, is divine hiddenness more expected on atheism or theism? Well, imagine the opposite of divine hiddenness. God is just a part of our everyday lives and, you know, he's just as obvious as me. Um, hmm, would that be evidence for theism or against the... Well, yeah, so this can be helpful if you're trying to decide whether something is evidence for or against theism because you really can't have it both ways. Like, if divine appearance or, you know, divine obviousness or whatever would be evidence for God, which it obviously would, then the opposite of that is evidence against theism. Um, anyway, just a helpful thing to keep in mind. Um, anyway, first of all, is there anything that uh, you guys want to say to that before we uh, move on to the w argument from widespread theistic belief? Makes sense to me. Well, I have too much to say. I mean, I'm fine with it, but as I know we've talked about before, that I think something can be like clear evidence for it, but it doesn't mean that that absence is really that strong of evidence against it. So it's not always like converse, like, yeah, if the, if like the earth was the center of the solar system, that would be decent evidence for theism, but the earth, like not being the center of the solar system, isn't like maybe as strong of evidence for atheism, but it seems like you would agree with that Emerson, but I just want to flag that, that it's not always like inverse or whatever. So. 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's why I stopped calling it symmetry, because I thought it was too easy to get that, like, oh, well, it would kind of be evidence for theism if human beings seemed like the literal, like, center of creation. Um, but the fact that we're not the center of creation, it's not, like, equally strong evidence against theism. So, um, yeah, the the strength of the evidence is not symmetrical. But, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, common consent. Um I guess I would just start by pointing out that humans are rational animals, you know, like we're uh, reasonable. I think contrary to, um, you know, popular opinion, we're not all totally stupid. Like if you, if you compare us to like, you know, other, um, you know, other creatures, it's obvious that like our rationality is something that sets us apart, you know, and I, I take it that theists and atheists can agree on this. Like theists will, you know, think that it's because we have the image of God and like atheists will have some other like evolutionary explanation for it or something. But I take it that like our rationality, you know, it gave us an advantage, you know, adaptively, like it has something to do with why human beings are at the top of the food chain. You like, it has something to do with why we're different and why we can speak like we're speaking right now. <laughs> like, I think our rationality has something to do with our technology and our, um, you know, evolutionary success. So I think that, um, if virtually all of the rational animals come to the same conclusion, that should affect your, uh, judgment. <laughs> um, like, if we all roughly agree on something, then that's not evidentially neutral, you know? And um, like I said, with the complementarity point, you can think, what if belief in God was basically like belief in flat earth? You know, it was like few and far between, like nobody took it seriously. It was just this weird thing that you heard about sometimes. Um, would we be in the same exact situation? Would that be like totally irrelevant? It's like, no, it wouldn't be irrelevant. Um so yeah, if, if almost all of the rational animals come to a similar conclusion, um, that is evidence favoring, like, the, the truth of that proposition. I mean, like, hopefully I don't have to specify it's not, like, absolute proof for it, or like, yeah, everyone can be wrong. There are examples of us being wrong um, collectively. But the thing is, we're right more often than we're not. Like, if you look at the set of beliefs that practically everyone agrees on, um, those are mostly true. And they're not just about, like, uh, trivial things. Some of them are, like, metaphysical conclusions. You know, like, the external world exists and other minds exist. Those are, like, metaphysical conclusions. Um, you know, but they're mostly trivial things. You know, like, um, tables exist, the sky is blue, you know, putting your hand in a fire hurts, six is more than two, you know, two is less than 16. Like, there are just all these things that pretty much everyone agrees on. Um, but I think we agree on it because we're rational, you know, and we can, like, see the truth in these things, you know, either through rational intuition or through perception or whatever. Um, so the thing that everyone agrees on here is that something godlike exists. They don't agree that the monotheistic god exists, uh, you know, like the omni-god or something. They don't agree that, like, you know, Christianity is true. They just agree that there's some kind of divine reality. There's something godlike that exists. There's widespread agreement here. Like, throughout all of recorded human history, like, the vast majority of human beings agree that there is something godlike that exists. So my only claim really is that that matters evidentially. You know, that, that, that theism does get, like, some kind of probability boost from that. Um, yeah. And to me, it seems like I have less and less patience for, you know, people who don't see this. Like, it just seems like totally obvious to me. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it like just should start from a place of like, OK, you're a single person. 
And then there's a whole bunch of other people. And you came to most of your beliefs through the use of a bunch of other people. And they've sort of been helping to form your belief systems and things like that. And whereas you might individually get something wrong, somebody else can correct you on that sort of matter. And there's a sort of like, I don't know, understanding of epistemology as part of like a, a group cooperative uh, uh consideration or a process that might take place. And so when you think about the fact that, yeah, like most of the people have held to some sort of theistic belief of some sort, and there's a kind of a minority, both historically speaking and geographically speaking, that are actually like, no, that's actually stupid. Um, I think it's, it, it, I don't know, it comes, at least to me, with a significant sort of cost to, to, to sort of bear to say that, yeah, most of the people that have ever, ever existed have been real idiots. And like, I don't know, <laughs> maybe, I don't, maybe I feel like that seems like a really epistemically sort of like conceited position to sort of take. And I, like, I don't know if I'm that like confident of my own particularly geographically sort of like determined space and time in order to like make such a wide swath judgment over like most of history and most people over everywhere seems like uh, kind of a wild sort of position to state yeah like for me it is partly about humility like okay like nine out of ten people in a room see something and you don't and it's like hey maybe you're just not seeing it like you know maybe they see something that you don't see um that doesn't mean you should change your mind like you should stick to your guns you should like have your convictions but um it should give you a little bit of humility when you realize that practically everybody like there's this cuz the 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 specific feature that we're that I'm keying in on is the persistence and the prevalence of this belief that something godlike exists throughout all of recorded human history so like the vast overwhelming majority of rational animals like have believed that something godlike exists for all of human history. It's an extremely persistent and prevalent belief and practically everything that answers to that description, you know, with that degree of persistence and prevalence, virtually all those beliefs are true. So like, anyway, I, I think that it does get Emerson. a probability boost. That's the only claim. Emerson, people, come on, people used to believe the earth was flat. Your argument's been debunked now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, Oh, I mean, do you shoot. have a degree in quantum physics, Emerson? <laughs> shoot, man, I just found out, you know, while you were speaking, um, someone just replied to my tweet and they said, have you even heard of the argument ad populum fallacy? So those are two See, decisive, yeah, 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 two you're, decisive you're committing defeaters. a fallacy. <laughs> I don't let people on who use fallacy. <laughs> right. Now, I mean, like my, my thoughts on like the argument from Comic Guts and it's like, I mean, at one time, that was, like, the only argument I knew, like, for God, it was, like, oh, well, like, most people believe in God, like, that was, like, the only, that's, like, the, like, first thing, like, most people, like, who don't, like, study philosophy and stuff think is, like, the main reason to believe in God, maybe, but it's, like, it's obviously not, like, up there as, like, the best argument, but, like, it is kind of an interesting starting point, like, okay, well, like, a lot of people do believe this, and, like, you know, we generally trust what, like, most majority of people believe, but at the same time, like, you could see why there are, I mean, obviously I don't have to tell you this, like that there are psychological, like motivating pragmatic reasons to like believe it because you want it to be true. And that does factor in when it's something like, you know, like the shape of the earth while has some pragmatic reasons for some people, like most people, it's probably going to be like, well, I'll just look at the way it is. So like, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, as we know, it's a different kind of question, but I agree, like all things being equal, like the majority view like the rational people we do give some weight to so 
And I guess the only um, response to this that I find really like promising is a sort of argument from like uh, oh, psychology. Yeah, yeah. Argument of psychology of religion. Yeah, something like that. I can't remember the exact name of the argument, but I interviewed um, the co-host of Naturalism Next about, you know, like the evolutionary origins of belief in God. And like that does seem like that actually has potential. You know, if you just develop some kind of error theory for like, okay, yes, everybody believes in something godlike. But, you know, here's the story about why that is the case. You know, like that seems to be like the most promising reply. Um, You know, things like it's like a combination of a few different like hypotheses, you know, like hyperactive agency detection is one that everyone has heard of. Um, and then there's just a few other things um, yeah. that he kind of ties together. And like, yeah, that is like, I think the most plausible response because I mean, even just like setting aside like the like dialectical context of like, you know, trying to come up with the best like cumulative case or whatever. It's like, as an atheist, aren't you curious why everybody believes in this thing that doesn't exist? Um, you know, so, yeah, it just seems like a matter of curiosity, if nothing else. But, yeah, it, that seems like it's the best response to the common consent argument. But every other response is bad. Yeah, I was just about to say that um, for the uh, – I, I don't know. I, I do think that, like, even when there is a sort of widespread agreement on some sort of position, if you can sort of pinpoint how all the people's, like, coming to believe that particular thing – let, had originated through some sort of faulty method of some sort. So, like, suppose that uh, everyone in an entire city believed that aliens have invaded or something like that. And like, wow, I should believe that as well because, like, everybody's thinking this. But if it, you came to find out, like, no, everyone's belief that aliens had invaded had come, in fr- had come from this sort of, like, radio broadcast of H.G. Uh, Wells' War of the Worlds, which is, like, a fictional story. If I were to discover that, I think that would, like, completely undermine whatever weight that there might have been prior to that of like, oh, wow, aliens have actually invaded. Uh, and, and so similarly, if the atheist is able to like provide a reasonable account as to how um, everyone or most everyone came to some sort of belief in God through some sort of like naturalistic uh, evolutionary story that could be told, then yeah, I think that could similarly work to, I guess, sort of discredit this argument. Although I will say that, like, sometimes these sorts of, like, rebuttals, I don't know, I feel like they go a little bit too far. Because if we say that, oh, some faculty that we've evolved uh, provided some sort of advantageous use in our evolutionary past, therefore the faculty is unreliable. Like, that seems like an awful argument. Because, like, you could say the same thing about, like, okay, our mathematical faculties. That, those were things that we've probably evolved due to some sort of advantage that they gave to us over our sort of evolutionary history. But like, do we want to say that therefore like math is fake just because like we happen to evolve yeah. a faculty that yeah, it did debunks man. No, okay. I just want to go to like so Joe Blow asked, perhaps there's some probability boost, but how much is it even close? material especially consider the burdens of the underlying theories so what do you think about that yeah i mean it's that there's a reason it's not a more widely discussed like you know argument like i said the theme is kind of like less discussed arguments and it's like yeah it's it's not like a massive probability boost it's just a probability boost you know like it, the probability boost would go to atheism if the data were reversed you know like if most people didn't believe in god um i mean like i said for me it mostly causes like some degree of humility you know where it's like you are saying that basically everyone is wrong (laughs) um 
and that just doesn't strike me as something that should be taken lightly, I guess. So it, it more affects like my disposition more than anything, you know, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's like this massive probability boost, like John Steingart. Um, yeah. You're mid atheist or arrogant. But... <laughs> well, let me clip um... <laughs> this, this out from my channel. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I think I did say something like that in the devil's advocate debate where I said like, you know, humility is not the word that springs to mind when I interact with like atheists on the internet. Um, you know, but yeah, it's like when they're saying like, Oh, it's like Santa Claus. It's like the flying spaghetti monster. It's like, well, here's a disanalogy. Um, nobody believes in, uh, you know, there's no like, f like functioning adult who believes in Santa Claus, you know, um, it's, it doesn't have the same features as theism, you know, or belief in something godlike. Um, so it's just a really obvious uh, disanalogy, and you should treat it differently for that reason. I was going to say, it seems like this sort of argument could actually be stronger, not applied to theism, but maybe like towards the spiritual world of like just supernatural entities of any sort, or even like demons in particular. Because like, I would think that like probably even more prevalent than like theistic belief is probably some sort of demonic belief in like people being possessed and things like that. And so I don't know if you would take that as to sort of like, yes, that's a, another conclusion that I can drive. Or is this like giving you a sort of reason like, well, maybe the kind of consent argument isn't very good. No, I, <laughs> I like mean, some people the, the, use it as an argument at certain. No, that's silly. I mean, it's like, you, yeah, there are like historically more people have believed in like ancestor spirits, like, you know, belief in the afterlife kind of comes out on top with this like if you're talking about this general category like more so than ancestor spirits more so than like um you know many gods or like some kind of divine reality like an afterlife is like the overwhelming like that it kind of comes out the best if you're making this sort of argument which doesn't entail theism you could obviously have an afterlife but you know no god um yeah but no i i yeah it's sort of like with phenomenal conservatism where some people start to realize that this is like kind of permissive and it's like yep <laughs> like it, yes it is um but yeah it's also like you just shouldn't confuse like you know probability boost with something that's like of critical significance like look like evidential support happens all over the place like you have to admit when it happens or else you're not really arguing in good faith and like all i'm trying to say is that you know widespread theistic belief is evidence for theism you know, it's not conclusive evidence. It's not like a dramatic probability boost, such that like atheism is irrational or something. But yeah, I mean, evidential support happens all over the place, but this is actually a good argument for God. And um, I think it's weird that theists don't like it, you know, because it is a good argument. And the only response really is this like, I mean, the only non-idiotic response is this kind of evolutionary debunking argument. And, you know, that's a complicated issue. Like you were saying, um, just because we can explain the evolutionary origins of something, that doesn't mean that, like, it's not tracking the truth, you know? So um, even if you could explain, it's like, maybe that's how God is, you know, reaching out to us. I mean, you can always say that, oh, that's just how God chose to do it or whatever. And then you could also question whether or not that sort of theory, the, like that cluster of theories actually does explain theistic belief, you know, right. like that's not a given. Um yeah. Anyway, there's there's a lot of interesting ground there, but I just don't I don't see why it should be um, as neglected as it is. You know, I guess my th I guess from my perspective, if, if I was on the other side, like I would respond like saying 
sort of like widespread pragmatism might explain it like a lot of people are doing like pascal's wager type reasoning like that even if they don't they're not really that informed about philosophy but they like the idea of god existing they're gonna it's just gonna make sense that like those people would conclude god exists even if they're not necessarily been justified and like i don't think that undermines the argument having some weight but i guess that would be maybe the best response to my mind but I guess it still does hint that there is. Then you could say, well, is this then piggybacking on like, yeah, there are some like, okay, at least okay, natural theology arguments. And then people tend to select those over the arguments against God. And like, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good response, but that's just kind of what I think. One possible reason that it's not more widely used in debates is because under this sort of rubric of a debate, there's sort of like the acknowledgement that like, okay, I'm going to provide evidence for God. Why should we think that God exists in the sense that like, this is something that oh, we would only see if God, it was real, like objective morality or something like that, that is, I'm going to present that as sort of like my evidence case. But the argument from common consent is almost like the evidence for evidence of God or something like that, where it's not so much like this itself is something that um, gives us reason to think that God does exist, but rather like this is something that um, I don't know, it, it is like almost tangential to the evidence in a sort of sense. So like, if I were to ask you, why, why should I believe in evolution? And you were to tell me something like, well, most schools in the country actually teach evolution. It's like, yeah, I guess that's like a reason to believe that evolution is true, but it's not actually like getting at like, what reasons should I think that, like, why is it that school, so yeah. many schools are teaching It's that? sort of like a, where there's smoke, there's fire type of yeah. argument. Like, but yeah, like a lot of people do just argue for evolution like that, where, where they're like, um, you know, well, look, you know, scientists believe in evolution, you know, like mm -hmm. they know what they're talking about. Um, there's an appeal there to like relevant expertise. And this is not that sort of argument. Um, mm -hmm. But it's still I'm making a separate claim, like, you know, where there's that much consensus, like those claims are generally true, you know. But yeah, it is kind of like an evidence of evidence thing where we're saying like, you know, yeah, where there's smoke, there's fire. So um, if you don't want to go into the meager moral fruits argument, if you want to sort of stick to arguments maybe for theism, we could discuss the... Uh, <laughs> Wait, did you see what Shannon said? <laughs> oh, no, what she said. <laughs> what should I draw on here? Let's see. Evidence of evidence, yeah. <laughs> I mean, put up a bar graph, and I'll put that, put that down as well. I don't even know if this works, but... Anyway, um, we could, if you want, we could go into the argument from psychophysical harmony. I mean, that's Wait, don't like, don't you have a less? Neither of you have lesser known arguments that you want to talk about. I mean, all of my arguments. Are pretty <laughs> known, I mean, like, I don't. By definition, I mean, I'm yeah. okay. I'm okay with going into the psychophysical harmony, but I recognize like that it's a pretty like meaty topic. But I mean, if we want to discuss it a little, like, I mean, I'm okay with that. There's yeah. really no. I thought that we all. I thought all four of us. I mean, Chris is still MIA, but you guys didn't come prepared with some kind of unknown argument. I'm surprised. I'm the only professional here once again. Yeah. But like, okay, so like, and this is one with me like an unknown argument, but like a lesser defended argument in debates would be like the argument from desire, which is really popular in like popular apologetic literature, but it's like almost never, I've seen it used, I think once in a debate and it wasn't like a well-known person debating this. It wasn't you know what I'm about? I feel like he's done that before. I don't know if I've, well, I haven't seen him use it in a debate, but maybe he has. He has it in like a lot of his books. But do you know what the argument is, Emerson? Because I know I've talked about it. Sort of. Well, I'll just explain it real quick. So it's like saying like, it's kind of like this. Go ahead. It's kind of like the one we were just 
talking about in a way. It's like saying, well, most desires can be fulfilled, like you know, our hunger and like. Yeah, no, I do know this argument. I I thought it was called something else. I thought it was like existential apologetics or something. Oh. Um, maybe I just have that wrong, but no, but no, I do like, know that argument. I, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Right. So it's like, saying like, yeah, it's so, yeah, it's so sense. It's like, but the thing is, there's like a few different ways it can go. You could say like inductively, most desires have like an object that can fulfill them. So like the desire for God, or, or you can make an argument for the afterlife probably also has a f- object that fulfills it. Or another way you could say it is like, we have this sort of like teleological type, like orientation towards God and that then or at least you could make the argument. And then you could say like that needs to be explained and God would best explain it. Like, I feel like those are two different arguments, but they're kind of like two facets of the argument. Oh, look who it is. Oh, well, hey. well, well. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, the calc test ran long. Are, are we on? I would have finished that calc test in about 10 minutes, I can tell you right now. Well, that's okay. I Actually, will... we're just wrapping up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 1984. This is stronger evidence against God than any argument that's been presented thus far. <laughs> yeah, so the uh, argument from the unjust distribution of propensities to sin. And he just launches wow. right into wow. it. Like he wow, 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 wow. <laughs> We've actually already discussed that and debunked it, but like, go ahead. <laughs> oh, that, that's the same. Yeah, I'll just have no, to. I'm joking. We haven't talked about it. In the battlefield of ideas. Well, we can yeah. talk about that, but I. But since I did bring up the argument from desire, and I don't want my streams to be just a complete failure, like, <laughs> why don't we just comment on it for at least a minute? Because like, I remember Chris at one time was, like, defending it in tweets, but this was, like, three years ago. So. Wait, so what, wait, what was I defending? Also, all jokes is like, where, where actually are we in the stream right now? Um, I already conclusively proved that widespread theistic belief is some evidence for theism, and we were moving on to uh, the argument from desire, like, well, you know, People feel hungry and there's food. People feel thirsty and there's, you know, uh, stuff to drink. People feel tired and there's sleep. People yearn for God, you know, so maybe there's like an object to fulfill these desires because that seems to be the trend with most of our other desires. Valid and sound. (laughs) I I liked the argument from desire a lot as a theist. And I think now, obviously, I don't think it's... uh, conclusive evidence for God or anything, but I do think it definitely increases the probability of theism being true. Uh, I don't, I remember, have you guys read a a two dozen or so arguments for the existence of God where it's sort of the different Christian philosophers going through planting his presentation and sort of too many fallacies. Yeah, yeah, that's true. No, lots of fallacies in there, but there's a, uh, but there are a couple different renditions of the arguments from desire in there. My favorite, personally, is the argument from games and play. Um, I quite enjoy that argument. But there's... I think the argument from desire is interesting. I think there's a lot of interesting work being done with it. I don't think it's... I don't think it's powerful enough to really contend with versions of the problem of evil or anything, but I still think it's an interesting piece of evidence for theism. It's really all I have to say. I don't know. I guess I kind of see it almost more like a pragmatic argument in a sort of sense that like we find ourselves in a condition in which we cannot be satisfied by anything in this world. So that sort of like gives us a reason to look outside this world for something that might be able to satisfy it. And then it just so happens to be the case that when people like devote themselves that they happen to do find some sort of like deep fulfilling um, meaning in their lives in that sort of way. Now I'm sure like people can find meaning in a whole host of other ways besides that, but it's, it is just at least interesting from sort of like consideration of how people sort of 
people's general sort of trajectory in their lives can tend towards that way where like they're in, earlier in their lives are trying to find meaning and not really finding it except for in some sort of like religious attitude towards the world. So I find that interesting, yeah. Isn't that just evidence that we are only capable of desiring things that have some conceptual that we have some conceptualization of? I'm not sure what that objection is that we're only capable of desiring things that we have some conceptualization of. I mean, maybe, maybe, and this is kind of how I would maybe, or I think a, a decent response to the argument would be is like, well, if you could think of some basic, and maybe this isn't what she means, but like, if you could think of something really good, then it would make sense that you would then desire it. So it's like, I don't know. And like, and I don't know if this is relevant or not, but like, I feel like the argument kind of divides into like, they're like psychological desires and they're like more biological, like physical type desires. And like the physical ones can have an object, but it's not clear that the psychological ones always do. And you, and that's where it becomes kind of vague to me. And that's where I'm like, yeah, this is kind of an interesting argument, but I'm not really, it's, it's not like really strong to me. So I don't yes. know if that's what she's getting at. Maybe. I can envision something along those lines being a decent objection that the reason there are um, fulfillments to these desires is because they're biologically grounded. It's evolutionary advent evolutionarily advantageous for us, to, for us to desire to eat, to get hungry when there's food around, when that, sur when that um, serves our survival mechanisms. But for something like belief in God or belief in the divine, that's some sort of spandrel, right? It's some evolutionary offshoot. It's not something that was actually formed under certain evolutionary pressures and so therefore wouldn't correspond to reality in the same way certain biological desires would. Um, I think that makes sense, but I don't think it works necessarily. Well, I think what, what Shannon was saying was like, you know, it's easy to invent concepts that only exist in our imagination and we can like those concepts, you know, but yeah, I, I think that like the objection that you guys were just talking about is a helpful way of distinguishing those concepts. Like, you know, biological urges, there typically is an object like to satisfy them, but things that are more abstract, you know, like it's not clear, like more existential. It's not clear that there's always an object to satisfy those things. Maybe we just invented a concept and we like it. It would be nice, you know, like it would be nice to live forever after our deaths, you know, um, at somehow some people deny that, but it's like, a, you know, I personally would like to continue existing after I could right. even exist forever. I think I'd be fine with that actually. Well, one thing I've looked at is like psychological desire has this like ultimate like root and like wanting to be happy. And then we can come up with things like, Oh, it'd be great if I have this or great. If, but it's like some of those things exist. Yeah. And some of them don't. And it's like, it's really clear, unclear to me to draw the line of like, which ones definitely exist and which ones don't. Once you, once you admit, like you can start coming up with versions that don't, it's really hard to say like maybe maybe our desire for happiness just doesn't have an object now as a theist i'm inclined to think it does but i'm not sure that this argument gets you there so right unless you fail to believe the right things about the trinity in which case i hope you like it warm because it's pretty warm where you're going <laughs> amen so real so true do you do you want to talk about um your argument from the Distribution yeah. of propensity, Chris, sinful please, propensity. Chris, please, please keep it brief, Chris. I mean, I try to have quality on this show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, Go ahead. Yeah, I like to give two broad categorizations of the argument, right? 
And so obviously the, da- the datum in question is the fact that certain people have stronger desires or propensities towards sin, towards others. The one way to cast this argument out is in terms of equality, right? And so this sort of hinges on a, I guess the way I'd articulate it is a sort of soul-building premise, that the reason we are allowed to suffer through sin and getting closer to God, trying to find Christ, is because it serves some good, right? It builds our souls. That journey is intrinsically valuable, right? And so the equality formulation of the argument, I would say something like, so think of the person who has struggled the absolute least with sin in the entire world, right? Whoever that person might be, who has the least propensity or desire towards sin, and therefore has the most leisurely moral journey towards living with God's will and being a good, faithful Christian, right? And so on that premise, this per- the suffering or the journey that this person went through is sufficient for God's purposes, right? They've done enough soul building, they've underwent enough suffering, enough process to meet God's needs, right? That's not God's needs, but you know what I mean, right? That good has been secured. And so when we look at other people, right, people with, let's say, certain uh, personality disorders, disordered interests or desires, who go, who go through a significantly more arduous process of overcoming their sin and living in a way that is in line with God's will, right, being a good and faithful Christian, well, we can point to this suffering, right, what they went through in their journey towards acting morally and point out that there's an excess of suffering here, right? If the theist wants to say that this suffering is necessary, right, what they went through on their moral journey is necessary to secure some good, to build their souls, then we can point out, then we can point to the fact that I just mentioned that there will be other people who've struggled less, who've gone through less on their moral journeys, and therefore clearly the suffering that they went through or this amount of pain, however you want to cash it out, is unjust. We don't need it because we've seen other cases where less suffering is sufficient to do the same purpose. So it would follow that this suffering, right, the arduousness of the moral journey is superfluous. Um, That's one way to cash out the argument. But the other way is in in terms of sort of uh, psychophysical disharmony, right, dysteleology, which is that we would expect, if God existed, that people with certain disordered desires, right? Let's say somebody who really desires to kill people, right? Or to have sex with children. We would expect these people to have um, impulse control, right? Or certain decision-making faculties that would allow them to rein in these desires and to live in a way that aligns with God's will. However, the correlation between the um, decision-making faculties that people have their impulse control and things of that nature are not at all correlated with their personalities, their desires, etc. So we have people who have these extremely dangerous, sinful, harmful desires, but with extremely poor impulse control. So it seems as though they were almost designed from birth. They were given a set of cards that don't allow them to act morally and make it almost impossible for them to do so. Whereas we have other people who have extremely good impulse control, who have extremely strong wills, but who don't desire these terrible things, who don't desire to live hedonistically, who don't desire to do these things that would separate them from God. And now the Christian would say that everybody desires these things to some degree, but the argument doesn't hinge on that, right? Just that some people desire them significantly less and desire significantly less sinful acts than others do, right? And so the idea here is, like I said, a little more subtle than the other argument, 
but it's that the faculties that we would expect certain people to be equipped with based on their desires and their psychology are not the ones that we actually see. Whether somebody desires to live simply or truly desires to live in harmony with God, that has nothing to do with whether they're able to actually handle these desires psychologically, right? And so I think that part of the, that version of the argument or that formulation is more in line with dysteleology or psychophysical disharmony, whereas the first one is more of an um, example of gratuitous suffering. And I think both work, but I think, I actually don't know which one I prefer, because I seem to prefer the second one, but I think the first one's easier to defend. Um, but at least that's, that's how I'd formulate the argument. Yeah, I think at least for me personally, I, I find the latter form of the argument a little bit more, I guess, compelling in some sense. I mean, like on a sort of surface level, I get, I understand the first version of the argument, but in thinking about it a little bit further that like, if I were to imagine a world in which everyone were equally like incapable of responding to the desires that they were built with. Um, seems like that would be like a less just world than the one in which there was this sort of unequal distribution between where some people are able to uh, overcome their temptations and other people aren't. Uh, now, maybe that's just sort of like thinking about it on the whole rather than particular situations. But there's also a sense in which I can kind of see how there might be certain unique virtues that could be gained from the fact that you had to work more at something compared to someone else who had to get it for free, in a sense. Because, like, imagine um, you're running track with somebody, and there's somebody else that's so much, like, it seems like they're able to run track easily, and it's super easy for them. And Whereas you, for yourself, you know, man, I have to, for uh, one thing that he's doing, I have to work, like, twice as hard in order to do that. There is a sense in which it seems like, yeah, there's a kind of like unique virtue there for that person to be able to exemplify in the fact that they are given a, a sort of shit distribution of some uh, of skills or talents. And yet they're still um, able to respond to that sort of unequal distribution graciously by like accepting the fact that, yeah, I mean, yeah, not everyone's going to have this particular set of skills. And so some people are going to have to work harder at it. And I'm just going to accept that fact because like maybe it's the case that he's also differently skilled in other areas like maybe he's much less capable at math and so there's an area in which like two people will have two unequal distributions of skills and talents that they well, can each correspond with each other in that way yeah. well in that case it wouldn't be unequal right if you well, be unequal in regards to the talent in one regard so it could be well, that unequal distribution that i'm talking about is across persons and yeah, then yeah. yeah i'm not separating between their particular struggles. I'm just talking about this person's moral journey versus this other person's moral journey. So all of that would be sort of summed together, I think. And it's I'm talking about the net suffering or the net difficulty that person goes through in their moral journeys. And so, I mean, at least if you're trying to say that, well, what was the first thing that you mentioned uh, like um, at the very beginning? Just I think that it seems like if I were to compare two worlds and try to differentiate, okay, which world has less justice within it? The world in which like everyone's temptations overpower their willpower to where they aren't capable of acting morally, that's in a situation in which the distribution of cities is equal amongst everyone. And then we were to compare 
that world to our world in which there's some people whose sinful proclivities overcome their willpower and other people whose willpower overcome their their temptations. This seems like a world with more justice because at least some people are able to do that thing. And so, yeah. Oh, I was going to say the world that I'm talking about is one where everybody's sin is, or not their sin, but their moral journey is their ability to overcome their sinful proclivities where it's minimized, right? So like I said, we pick out the person who has the least difficulty overcoming their sinful proclivities. And if God were to render it such that every single person's difficulty in overcoming their sinful proclivities was equal to that one's to that one person's, that's the world that I'd expect. Um, that's the one that I'm saying that doesn't correspond to reality, and I think that's the problem for theism. Not the I fact know. that nobody's as equal as such. If everybody was sadistic and nobody had a moral compass, of course that would be worse for theism, right? Yeah. I'm mostly talking about the fact that we know that some people have easier moral journeys than others, and the fact that some people's are harder, and because we know that some are easier, there is some superfluous suffering there. So if I understand you, Chris, you're saying that there's, you know, a lot of importance to equality of opportunity, if you will, which many have pointed out is the foundation of Western civilization. So this is certainly in line with, you know, those liberal values that Christianity also created. So I just thought I should mention that. Yeah, as uh, Tom Holland has astutely pointed out, uh, this is true. This is so true. Christianity built Western civilization. And if it weren't for Christianity, nobody would know that more, that murder is wrong, that eating children for fun <laughs> It's bad. <laughs> Nobody would know. Yeah. And but. some people have pointed out there was like a 1500 year delay between modern liberal values and uh, the advent of Christianity. And I would say, shut up. <laughs> shut the heck up. Anyway, so I did have, so I think this is like an interesting argument, but I'm not sure. Like, it seems like there are like different features of it. This argument could just go so many different ways. So, like, you mentioned this in passing. All of them sound the, valid. <laughs> you mentioned this in passing in the post where it's like, there are some people who are basically like not fully functioning adults, like where they, we don't even treat them as like responsible for their actions practically because they're like so dysfunctional. Um, there's like no hope for them, like overcoming their sinful proclivities. And it's like that, you know, that alone is like an interesting data point. Like, I think you also made an argument from like the existence of psychopaths at one point. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, it seems kind of similar to that, but, um, I get that, like, the focus here is, like, the injustice of the distribution of these, like, propensities to sin. Like, some of them are really, really hard to overcome, and there might be some value in that, but I think that, like, something that, you know, trips up that sort of soul-building-like thought process is the idea that we're going to be, like, judged and we're going to suffer for something that is ultimately not our fault. Exactly. Um, and, you know, as a compatibilist, I think that you can be, like, judged and held responsible for um, your nature, even if something like determinism is true. But I think there's a distinction between personal and impersonal causes, which is why this doesn't—I don't see this objection as, like, conflicting with compatibilism more generally. Like, you know, if God is kind of responsible for the, like, distribution of propensities to sin, then the fact that it seems unjust, you know, that's significant. Um but yeah, if you take God out of the picture, then there are only these impersonal causes. Um, then I have no issue with like holding those people responsible or so. This is like a side point. I'm like defending compatibilism. Um, but like, you know, I just think there's an important distinction between personal and impersonal causes. And I feel like that might preclude some objections like, hey, you're a compatibilist. Like, how can you like 
formulate this argument like once you get into the weeds a little bit more so anyway just wanted to plant a flag there yeah and i think that's i think that's plausible i'm not sure where i land on uh, the compatibilism issue i'm very pro rehabilitationism and so i do think there are certainly criminals out there who i don't think should plausibly be held accountable like you mentioned the people that i talked about in the article who are essentially who literally have iqs of like 75 and are rapists and murderers right it's it almost never even began for these people and so i think it's fair to say that it's a dubious issue of whether they should be held accountable response i think that's a complex moral issue right and i know you mentioned the argument from psychopaths um and Jeffrey J. Louder, I think, was the first person to mention this argument. But my understanding of the argument from psychopathy was a little different, right? The way I like to catch that argument out was in terms of – it's a little more abstract. And I don't think it's nearly as good as this one, but sort of in terms of, like, the depth of um, psychological experiences, right? That when we talk about being made in the image of God, right, the things that are essential to being human, we could talk about, you know, love, feelings of transcendence and a variety of rich and diverse emotional experiences. However, the fact that a, uh, a portion of the population are completely foreign to, or a portion of the population is completely foreign to these ideas, they do not have these complex and rich emotions, and they don't have these fulfilling experiences that seem to be intrinsic to a Christian understanding of personhood and being made in the image of God, I think that's a problem, and that's how I like to imagine the argument from psychopathy. Uh, because I think in terms of unjust distributions of propensities to sin, I don't think psychopathy on its own would be enough to – well, obviously, psychopathy is an issue, right? If you're psychopathic and just by your nature, right, the way you behave, you have a blatant disregard for the rights and the emotions and the well-being of others through no fault of your own, right? That's simply how you behave naturally. Um, that would be a problem for theism. However – if most psychopaths were intelligent, had very strong intellectual moral compasses, that would be um, – that would diffuse the issue, right? However, the fact that there are lots of psychopaths who don't um, – who don't have those other necessary psychological traits, that's an issue. So Joe Blow asks, does the argument change if we presume that the ultimate judgment is based on – actions in context of divinely provided capabilities. So basically asking like, well, what if the psychopaths aren't judged as harshly as those who um, murdered when they could have done otherwise? So like the people that have psychopathic tendencies, we want to say that God they are less them. responsible. Judge them according to what they were able to do. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't think this works. And a lot of people have brought this up before, and it always befuddles me because the argument makes no mention of punishment at all. Right. I think an atheist could run the argument based on, uh, well, it's unjust for God to judge people based on their natures, which they didn't choose themselves. However, the way I like to cash it out doesn't have anything to do with that punishment. It's only the suffering that they went through in their earthly existence. So even if the psychopath is judged less harshly, the fact that they underwent a significantly more arduous moral journey, that piece of data hasn't been assaulted at all. That still stands and it's still evident evidence against God. Same with um the part about disharmony that also still stands. I think that the, what people are thinking, they're, they're, they're sort of like skipping ahead to, oh, did he have to leave? I think he left. Oh, I was just about to draw something. I don't know. Didn't want to have to face any criticism. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, if he comes Well, up. I was about to say that, like, my kind of, oh, my gosh, look at the picture he has. 
Chris, I'm just going to say that's embarrassing. Is that the guy from Criminal Minds? Actually, it's the guy from Hannibal, which is the thinking man's Criminal Minds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, Maya. Oh, yeah, look at my... Mine is Fox Mulder, the the spooky naturalist, the thinking man's spooky naturalist. Uh, he, I'm the thinking man's spooky naturalist. <laughs> no, Fox Mulder is. <laughs> Um, I was I was about to blame part like what I just said like you know people I think are kind of reading into the argument more than you're saying like sort of like how I just did where they're sort of taking it farther where they're like oh yeah and they're going to be judged for their sinful proclivities you know and that's actually not a part of the argument um, as you formulate it but I think it is natural to be like yeah don't you uh, (laughs) aren't you like judged for your uh, proclivities and stuff Uh, like um and that that adds this whole you know so actually that brings me to something I wanted to ask you like you know um, for clarification about because you specify this is about the distribution of sinful proclivities and not just like the existence of sinful proclivities so a lot of people like this occurs to a lot of people like why would you create people with like pedophilic urges like just don't do that <laughs> and then there will be no pedophilia like you know don't create people uh, who are psychopaths and there will be no psychopathy like so you can cash out like or you can talk about all kinds of different proclivities and it's like why <laughs> like yeah. why do people have these but yeah. you're actually not really just talking about like the existence of the proclivities you're talking about like the injustice of the distribution of the proclivities and not even as it relates to like you know uh the judgment in the afterlife so i feel like that's you know yeah a common where i think it's a little bit confusing is that like you're continually talking about it as like sinful proclivities but if we understand sin as a sort of voluntary action performed by an agent then maybe those with psychopathy don't really have any sort of voluntary control over their actions in this regard. And so we should instead consider them more akin to like a lion tearing apart a gazelle rather than a a moral agent that is making this decision. And so, uh, yeah, in a sense, maybe if we were to just ask that question, why is it the, the case that there are people with pedophilic tendencies and murderous desires? This is more of a question of like, natural dysteleology or something like that rather than well, just a, just one minor like clarification like it's i wouldn't call it disharmony or dysteleology it's more like teleological evil because disharmony is just bad design mm-hmm. and te- disharmony is like when there's this inappropriate like mismatch between physical behavior and like internal it's it's i think it's just more accurate to call it teleological evil but to address something that shannon said she said oh well i guess we're all just wasting our time here then if it's not about no the argument about the existence of the proclivities is a good point it's just yeah. not what chris's argument it is like i yeah. make that argument all the time like why do people have these proclivities it'd be so easy for an omnipotent god to just not have people who are like that and then there'd yeah, be a lot I, less suffering but it's just it's just not chris's argument was my only point yeah, the only reason that i don't that i make this argument instead is because you have to deal with just so it's more of a, a practical maneuver because I have to deal with terrible arguments like, what about the fall? Have you ever thought about that before? Have you heard of the fall of man? And it's, I get to avoid all that by just talking about the unjust distribution of propensities to sin, right? So I'm conceding a lot to the theist. I'm granting a lot to the theist that I probably shouldn't grant. Um, I think that's true. And I think the argument that these shouldn't exist in the first place is a pretty big issue, right? Why are some people pedophilic what purpose does that serve what do sexually sadistic tendencies serve in the population right that seems to be an issue in and of itself right especially if people are judged for them right but i i like to avoid a lot of that dialectical um confusion by moving the argument 
up a little bit. I'm sorry, Chris, but Craig has debunked you again. He already took you out on Twitter. Just, He's back. This, is another, this is a perfect example where it doesn't have anything to do with the argument, right? And so like John was saying, people who are more akin to, let's say, somebody who's a sexually sadistic psychopath, right? And so not only do they have um, these dangerous desires that harm other people, but they also lack impulse control to rein them in. So actually, let's not say a psychopath, right? Let's just say somebody with poor impulse control who is sexually sadistic. And this person goes on to rape and kill three people. Now, this person, even if they're not culpable for what they did, it's easy to imagine this person living a miserable life as a real, saying, oh, my God, what have I done? I actually out so is it been an unequal distribution of proclivities given to, yeah well here's the thing so like let's say that person if you say they're not culpable it's even worse right this person has essentially been forced by god's design to continue to enact these horrible horrific crimes that they aren't responsible for right they had no choice but to commit and must live a horrific miserable life of guilt and torment that seems to be a big problem for theism, I think. And I, I, I'm not sure what you were saying then. I'm, I, were you mentioning how it's sort of like divergence? Was, yeah. So if um, so if that's not what Craig was saying, I don't mean to misre- misrepresent him or anything. Um, just the point I'm trying to make is that whether the person's culpable or not, whether we're talking about responsibility or not, that's not a part of the argument. It's just what that person goes through. Mm. from their sinful proclivities if you're talking about the equality version of the argument as i like to call it or the mismatching of behavioral Mm. traits and certain psychological traits in the disharmony version of the argument so i just want to put that out there yeah i I wanted to bring up uh, another thing because yeah i I get your point that like yeah if everybody's uh will uh temptation overpowered their willpower that would be a less just world but that's not sort of relevant well then in considering like, let's suppose we have some person that whose temptations heavily exceed most of their willpower to the point that they will overcome their temptation or that they will be overcome by their temptations and act sinfully. And then there's another person who has about a moderate amount between willpower and temptations that they're sometimes able to overcome it, sometimes be overcome by it. And then another person who's sort of like that, that Giga Chad, <laughs> whose willpower is so great that any temptations that he might have, he'll easily be able to overcome. And you're saying that, like, the fact that we have these difference between people is unfair. Like, if it, if it was a really uh, just society or a real just uh, distribution, then each of these people would have it in the same location somewhere on this place. And so here's not where... Necessarily not, I'm not saying they'd all be the same, but they, they, but they would all be at... They'd all be at the Giga Chats level. Okay. So then it's not the fact that it's unequally distributed it's the fact that it's distributed in a way that's not easily overcomable so so i I need to be clear here right because it's a little bit it's a bit of a subtle point but the way i frame the argument in order to make it more plausible is to point out that there is some person right or some persons who have struggled less with sin than anybody else probably right it's obvious that some people struggle with sin more than others. I don't think anybody would deny that. And if they do, I don't want to have a conversation with them. So I think that's an obvious da- piece of data, right? And so taking that for granted, we can then say that, well, arbitrarily, whichever person had the least amount of struggle with sin, since we know that it's possible to struggle... Uh, let me let me rephrase that, right? 
let's say that this person who's had the least amount of struggle or the least amount of difficulty in their journey through sin, right? This person, if that amount of suffering, soul building they went through is sufficient for God's purposes, then for what that, for what God wants to do with that person, right? Couldn't the same be said for everybody else? Why isn't everybody else going through their own respective sins at the same amount of difficulty and arduousness as that one person? Right. So it's always like assuming the, uh, soul building theodicy and then like well if we were to assume this then this is what we would expect people to have the easiest level possible to build their souls up sort of i think if it assumed if the person the argument is directed towards assumes the, the, the soul building theodicy i think that's the easiest way to run it but like i said i think that any theist who tries to account for somebody's the difficulty of somebody's moral journey right the suffering they undergo trying to fight their sin if they try to account for that through God's purposes, right, like God using it for some good, using it for some end at all, then they're going to have the issue of, well, some people have moral journeys that are way worse than that. But clearly, this quantity of suffering is good enough for God's purposes. Why wouldn't this? Why do we need this much more suffering? Right? So the reason I made this is just to sort of ask the question, like, if we were to imagine a world in which this wasn't an unequal distribution between all of these people, but it was rather an equal distribution between all of them at, say, the mid-level, because like compared to our world, that would be a more equal distribution of sinful proclivities. And in this world, in which they're all the same level, um, you would say that this argument wouldn't go through because it's just actually true that everyone does have the same amount of sinful proclivities compared to their willpower. Um, and so that would be like less uh, or it would just be a case in which the argument doesn't actually go through but i don't know when i'm like considering this world versus the previous world with the unequal distributions it seems to me that they're comparable in regards to their amount of evil in the world and so I, i'm not seeing how this is suddenly going to be like i said a better argument for god or, or it's like less of a bad argument for god than the other one well well that's what I'm trying to say, right? Why don't we just move well, why don't you move all the sliders right down to the gigachat level? That that's the question. Well that wouldn't be like I'm just talking about the the core point. Like in this world, there is an equal distribution of sinful proclivities amongst each person. Well, I never said okay, so it seems like you're just making sort of a semantic argument, right, about my usage of the word equal. And if so, I could just switch out that word and say something like unjust. Because the point I'm trying to make is sort of a um principle of least suffering right sort of paraphrase the principle of least action right that all these that every person should be experiencing the minimal amount of suffering required in their moral journeys fighting through their sinful proclivities as possible right the yeah. only reason i point to the specific person who has existed who has experienced the least um difficulty is because we know that person exists but theoretically, if it were possible, if we knew it were possible for sure, that we could undergo even less suffering, even less difficulty with our proclivities to sin than we've actually seen, then that would be another problem for theism. The only reason I point to empirical examples is so we're not wondering, oh, could we could that could we have suffered less? What's the minimal amount somebody could suffer through sin and still achieve God's purposes? I don't want to deal with that issue. I don't want to have a conversation with a theist on that. I want to be able to point to that this person suffers very, very little with sin, why is it the case, or we would expect, um, since excess suffering isn't, permit isn't permissible under theism, for everybody to suffer exactly as much as that person, 
through their moral journey, therefore achieving God's purposes. As we know, that amount of suffering does achieve God's purposes. So then it's excess, right? Since, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think I brought this up to you before in a private conversation that, like, if we were to imagine a world in which there's just one person that has sort of sinful proclivities and a lot of opportunities to that will exploit those sort of proclivities. That itself would be like an injustice that's there because they're sort of born with these proclivities that they had no control over and that yet they're expected to sort of like overcome them even though it's incredibly difficult for them to do so. So like in a world in which there's a single person that has like a a high amount of sinful proclivities, um, it seems like, yeah, the fact that like if we were to suddenly add another person to that world who's like maybe... um, less uh, or like at that equal level i don't know if that like suddenly makes it so no so that's why i pointed out that's why i said just now that if there were if even aside from the equality if we knew that it was possible for god to make people suffer significantly less on their moral journeys that Mm -hmm. that would still be a problem for theism even if everybody's equal so then that's right that's why I'm not sure it's the the evidence in question isn't like a distribution amongst people it's particular to no it is actually i think because that's the way that we – because otherwise, if we just sort of bloviate about whether it's conceptually possible for God to make people who go through easier moral journeys than we've ever seen but still achieve his goods, then we're just sort of – it's just philosophical gobbledygook at a point, right? That's something I could talk about with the theist for hours and not make any progress with. But we know right. that there are people – who go through less arduous moral journeys than anybody else. We know that's true. So I can point to that and say, that that's your issue right here. Right. So, so then I think that's useful in like clarifying or like as a proof of concept in order to sort of go on, but it's still going to be the case. That's not the evidence. It's, it's the evidence is the fact that people are built with sinful proclivities and they could have been built without those proclivities. Which is and what we know because of people who have not. Right, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. we know because of that, but it's not the, like even if there was two people or one person or something like that, um, we could still run the argument or a, a modified version of the argument, in, in which case I think it's stronger, where it's not pointing at the distribution between people. It's just pointing out the fact, hey, this person has been given a certain amount of proclivities that overpower that overcome their willpower, and that's unjust. And we can either conceptualize or we can observe that there are people like that wouldn't get anywhere i've seen where um, arguments for theism or for atheism that rely on sort of conceivability right it's like ah, is this enough suffering would this suffering merit this amount of um, goods being secured something like skeptical theism it doesn't get us anywhere so i don't think throwing another because i think it's extremely intuitive that people's moral journeys could be significantly easier and that there's nobody that's ever existed that's gone through a sufficiently easy moral journey that would be capable to secure, God, to secure God's goods. That's obvious to me. It's probably not obvious to you. And if it is obvious to you, it may not be obvious to Caleb. And because of that, our intuition just hit a wall, right? Mm-hmm. So even though I think conceptually in terms of what the argument hits at, that not all moral journeys have been minimized in terms of their difficulty, I, I guess you could say that's the premise of the argument. I think that's perfectly fair. But I'm just trying to run it in a way that's as powerful as possible. I think maybe one way to, I don't know if Chris is still here, but um, one way to think about it is 
when it's framed as an argument against soul building, I think it makes kind of sense because a lot of theists will use that theodicy and it's like saying, well, this is a problem for soul building. So I think that kind of like beats them to the punch. And I'm not saying it couldn't be used against other theodicies, but I think it it's the most potent against soul building. So it is a challenge to theists who use that theodicy. And I mean, I kind of agree. Now, somebody could, I guess, appeal to like extra afterlifes and things like John Hick originally seemed to and kind of helps alleviate but it, i mean that that raises further questions but i don't know that's sort of kind of my thoughts am i audible now okay what was i in the middle of saying does anybody remember no you like you finished your point and then you kind of froze um and then we could hear you crying in the background gotcha because i'd already been <laughs> by caleb when i saw him unmute i started shaking um can i so it seems like when you're talking about the like the arduousness of a moral journey or like the easiness of like a moral struggle or journey or something like you're it's, it's important to talk about the suffering that's experienced by moral agents when they uh, kind of fail morally. Is that like a crucial bit of this argument, like that specific kind of suffering? So once again, this gets, this gets a little nuanced, but I don't think so. So I guess you'd be talking about guilt, right? That sort of feeling like I, that uh, pain you feel after you committed a moral wrong, is that what you're specifically saying? Well, like, what do you mean when you talk about the arduousness of a moral journey? You're talking it, about, like, resisting temptation and, like, you know, the failure. It. It's all of it, right? And so when I talk about the arduous of your moral journey, that might just be the amount of difficulty, the amount of pain it took for you not to give in to your proclivities. Or it might refer to the significant, the significant amount of guilt that you underwent afterwards, right? So it's any part, any experience that person has that is negative, that results from their sinful tendencies, their sinful proclivities, and their inability to control them as broadly as possible. And as compared to people who just don't even have those proclivities, so there's not really that kind of struggle and suffering that comes with, you know, resisting those, like, uh, proclivities and the guilt that comes if you fail to resist them. Exactly. And I would like to point out that if we're talking about psychopaths, right, and somebody might think, well, if somebody has antisocial personality disorder and they don't feel guilt or remorse for their actions, then are they really suffering? Well, I can point out the fact that in terms of resisting their urges, there is certainly suffering, right? There are plenty of people with antisocial personality disorder who realize their tendency to do immoral things, to manipulate, to deceive, to use others for their own gain, and so are sort of forced to retract from society to do their best to not interact with people, which seems like a pretty miserable fate. Nobody wants to go through that. That's a difficult thing to do. And the fact that these people are forced to do that in order to prevent hurting others, even if they wouldn't feel bad emotionally from doing so, they're still undergoing unjust suffering. And, oh, also I wanted to point out that the second version of the argument I talked about regarding disharmony doesn't have anything to do with whether anybody really feels bad or any... I didn't cast it up. I didn't cast it out correctly. I didn't articulate that the way I wanted to. It doesn't really have anything to do with whether that person suffers or feels bad or feels guilt or upset by teleology at play, which is why is the person with overriding criminal violent urges gifted with incredibly poor impulse control and unable to resist doing these horrible things? That seems really unexpected if God carefully orchestrated all persons in order to give them the battles, to give them the struggles that are fair and just to them, right? So that's how I sort of spin that issue. Um, is it fair to call this an argument from evil? So 
I, I really hate like when uh, Christians like responding to the argument were like, "Ah, oh, this is just the argument for me." It's, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not just the argument for me. I'm saying, is it in that category? No, yeah, 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 I know you're doing it more charitably. I'd say the first version, the equality version, the one that me and John were talking about, that's definitely an argument from gratuitous suffering. And I think the second one is probably an argument from disteleology or teleological evil, whichever one seems, because I know those are very fine-tuned terms. Because um, to me, it seems more like disteleology. It just seems blatantly stupid and sloppy that, hey, why do these personality disorders that lead to horrendous immoral behavior why are they why do they have no correlation with these other personality traits that just seems silly it's random it's mindless more so than it is built in to cause suffering right but i could also see somebody saying well doesn't it seem sort of like that person's designed to do evil by the fact that they have that poor impulse control and those desires and i'd say well fair enough so i think whether you want to call that this teleology or teleological evil is mostly a matter of preference but it falls under that school of argument more so than Grat suffering. just trying to keep it at a good length so maybe if Mercedes you had something you want to say and then i'll let you guys share some final thoughts oh thank god we don't have that much time to talk about meager moral fruits um so i've come to completely hate this argument not because it's bad but because i'm subjected to the worst and dumbest and least um interesting and least sincere um objections conceivable so the meager moral fruits argument is a category of arguments that has to do with um, the moral fruits of theism and of specific religions and specific sects. So I think it's better at um, honing in on specific versions of theism rather than theism as a whole, but there are formulations of it that do work against theism in general. Um, they're just not my favorite ones. So there are three parts here, a theological premise where I repeat what theists say to me in other contexts back to them, and then they deny it because we're in the context of the meager moral fruits argument. Okay. Um, but it's just roughly that we should expect unique moral fruits from the one true religion that God, uh, you know, revealed to us. Um, and then there's a moral premise and an empirical premise where we rely on faculties that we wouldn't distrust in other contexts about making judgments about the world and, you know, ordinary moral judgments. So um, I've put this argument the same way several times, and um, people usually don't listen to me and respond to something I didn't say. So I, I'm going to try to put it a slightly different way here. Um, nothing of God can be evil. So God is good. So things that are of God are good. If it's evil, then we can know that that's not of God. You know. So if there was like an authentic teaching from Joseph Smith and he said, you, you know what you really should do? You should grab infants and smash their heads against rocks. Then we can know that he was not really a prophet of God, <laughs> because anything that's evil is not of God, and smashing babies um, is evil. And, you know, that's my moral judgment there. And then, uh, you know, the empirical judgment would be about, like, the authenticity of that teaching. So if it's an authentic teaching from Joseph Smith um, that we should do that, and it's evil— well, that's not what we would expect from the one true religion, you know, a revelation from the perfect God of the universe. So that would be evidence against Mormonism, you know, if that was an authentic teaching. 
So it's really that simple. Would that be evidence against Mormon? Hmm. Yes, it would be evidence against Mormonism if Joseph Smith taught that. So that's the you know that's a hypothetical meager moral fruits argument. Like a more serious example is from um, Jehovah's Witnesses. They practice something called shunning. Um, if you engage in what they consider serious sin, which includes you know actual sins like murder, and then also things like smoking and gambling, and um, also voting. And what? Also serious sins. Yeah. Um, being gay, uh, voting, which is a weird one, um, oral sex, uh, you, this could eventually result in disfellowship. It often results in shunning. I actually, uh, my two cats that I have, I actually adopted from someone who was a former JW who was being shunned by her family. Um, anyway, so those seem to be like authentic parts of Jehovah's Witness theology or whatever. And, um, yeah, so it seems like it's an authentic part of Jehovah's Witness, and it seems to me that shunning is an evil practice. It's a family-destroying poison. Like, it's it, it, it's so easy to see how it would have come about. Like, oh, this social group has this practice to ensure group membership and to make it very high cost to leave the, the group. And, you know, because maybe you're financially dependent on people. Maybe you don't want to lose your family. Maybe you don't want to be given the silent treatment by your parents for the rest of your life. Um, so there are these, like, mechanisms meant to ensure the group's survival. It's obvious there's a natural explanation for why that exists. And it seems to me that, you know, shunning, as I said, is a family-destroying poison, so I don't think that's of God. Like, I don't think Jehovah's Witnesses um, are true, like, representatives of a perfect being, because it seems like this disfellowship and, sh and shunning practice is authentic. You know, it's it's not like, oh, this is a terrible perversion of what Jehovah's Witnesses are supposed to be doing. As far as I know, it's a common practice, and it's considered, you know, like, just a normal part. I mean, I don't know. It, I went on their website, actually, to double-check this, and it sounds like they try to downplay it a little bit. But like I said, I, I knew someone who this was happening to. Um, anyway, so I uh, think that that is actually good evidence against Jehovah's Witness. And I, I don't really care to look into the other things they have to say, because I think that they um, there are t authentic teachings that are uh, not good, you know, like, more, and that's just not what you would expect if Jehovah's Witness, if like the JW religion was like, you know, the one true religion, like it was the product of this perfect being. Um, yeah. So look, nothing of God can be evil. Um, I know that, I mean, there are a lot of other things that, that I can say here, but I'll just pause for a moment and say like, moral fruits are not evidentially neutral. Okay. Like that's a really implausible position to me. Um, they're not evidentially neutral and they are not out of our epistemic reach. You know, so I think that our moral faculties are generally trustworthy, our epistemic faculties are generally trustworthy, and um, yeah, meager, uh, uh, moral fruits, you know, to treat them as like evidentially neutral in the theism versus atheism, or, you know, like even if we're staying in the arena of theism and just trying to say like, okay, well, you know, is there any version of theism that's just not really worth looking into? I think this is a perfectly legitimate tool to like weed out um, forms of theism that we can be sure are not of God. So, um, yeah, I guess I'll pause there and hear what you guys think. Yeah. Um, I just want to say, I just wanted to say that um, I, I would, I'm, I, I definitely agree with you that I think meager moral fruits, the moral status of certain religions and their impact in the world is certainly a legitimate way of looking at their validity, right? Looking at the probability that they're true. And I think the, best version of the meager moral fruits argument you mentioned it in your video on it and 
correct me if I'm articulating incorrectly, but something along the lines of if a particular religion were true, we'd ex- we'd expect it to be by and large a force that advances good in the world, that seeks the good, and that pushes society towards the good. However, this isn't what we observe for any religion, and so we have good reasons to think they're false. Because I think that is deeply plausible. I think you'd have to be trying really, really hard, really reaching to say that that's not true. If the Catholic Church were ahead of the curve on every single moral issue, right, even when it wasn't um, in vogue at the time, right, let's say during antebellum slavery, the Catholic Church, by and large, was as an institution against it, publishing uh, doctrines, pamphlets, etc., against it, and that was where the institution was as a whole, and this is something we observe throughout history, and like, hey, all the moral progress that we've seen has been anticipated by the Catholic Church, and they have been strong stewards in fighting for this uh, moral progress and this, this force of good in the world, that would be great evidence that Catholicism is true. And I think everybody would agree with that, right? But a lot of people get really squeamish when we look at the fact that that's not what's happened. It's actually behaved exactly as we'd expect if it were a man-made institution that func- that functioned based on off of the same group and social mechanisms that we see in any other organization, right? When we look at issues like slavery, Christians were never ahead of the curve. Of course, there were Christians who were abolitionists, right? But by and large, there's no distribution, right, that we see in these certain moral issues where we're like, damn, Christians really nailed that. They were really ahead of the curve. I'm really amazed at how well they were able to stand for the good, right, and defend the good as time went on. That's not what we observe throughout history, and as a result, I think that's really good reason to be skeptical of these religions. And I think a lot of Christians would respond to this, um, probably people who are pretty chronically online, and say things like, well, look now, all the sexual degeneracy of the world, the only people standing against that are the Catholics, right, the Christians. We're the only people standing against the world as it falls apart, as it crumbles, But these are also people who probably think that you should be stoned for being a homosexual, who want to hang people who cheat on their spouses, right? And so those people would still be guilty of poor moral reasoning, right? And so just because you're able to pick and choose moral positions that you like and say, well, these just happen to be the exact same ones that uh, my religion believes, well— Look at how my religion has done in advancing those moral principles. Then, number one, like I said, that's a circular line of reasoning. You're not really looking at moral judgments, looking at moral intuitions, and showing how this particular religion, this particular institution has correlated to them. Rather, you're starting with the uh, institution's own principles. But even then, I think it's incredibly obvious that throughout history— the Catholic Church, and as well, I'm just speaking on the Catholic Church. I don't mean to get onto Caleb and John, just because that's the one that comes to mind, right? It's definitely the most prominent. Uh, but they haven't even done a good job of upholding their own principles, right? So even if we were to do an internal critique and look at it from the Christian's perspective, we can still say, well, this really isn't what we'd expect. There is still good reason to think that this is exactly how it would behave, as if it were a group of principles and doctrines held by a group of people as opposed to a God-ordained and God-guided organization and institution. So even if the Christian does try to pull that move, which I imagine many of them will, um, the argument still goes through. So, yeah, I think that formulation of the argument is really implausible to deny. So that's my take on it, at least. 
Um, I guess I, I just want to clarify. Do you think that the argument sort of works at like, I guess you could say almost like different scales to where like you can make a sort of like um, meager moral fruits argument against theism, a meager moral fruits argument against Christianity, a meager moral fruits argument against Mormonism. And each one might have differing, I guess, pieces of evidence and, and also different strength of the evidence to where there's like some particular religion is more obviously not from God. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the mere fact that there there um, are these sorts of people isn't itself the evidence against God per se. It's more so evidence against God's sort of being in this place. So it could, like somebody could not use it as an argument against theism per se, but more so as an argument against, okay, this particular religion, and I think that God does exist, he just exists elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, totally, because any any religion or sect or whatever that seems to make certain predictions, like it seems to imply that like, Hey, you know, we're like the one true religion, you know, like we're uniquely of God. Whereas like Islam is not actually of God. Not sure how that came about, but it wasn't God. Uh, Mormonism, that's because there was this really horny guy named Joseph Smith. And like, that's why Mormonism exists. And uh, you know, like they have these different stories for other religions, except for theirs. And it's like, well, well, I would expect, I mean, like, it seems like since, you know, this is the one true religion and like, um, you, you might expect it to stand out in terms of moral fruits, you know, and like, it's also, um, you know, I think that Caleb Jackson actually pointed out something that was pretty crucial, which is like, the reason that the Christians get so upset about this argument is because testimony, the notion of testimony is like central to Christianity, like your testimony, like being saved and like how you're different than you were before you were saved and that sort of thing. And when I'm saying like, Hey, look, I was a Christian, you know, I was involved in Christian ministry, like from the inside for years and years and years. I've seen all the, all the testimonies. I've heard all the stories and I'm just not that impressed. Like it's not really, as spectacular as I would have expected. Like, it seems perfectly natural to me. You know, it doesn't seem like it's, you know, Christians are normal people, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, Craig says, I don't think any Christians are arguing that most, yeah, again, I'm not even, what did I say that makes you think this is the argument that I made? Like, I don't think any Christians are arguing that most Christians live lives authentically informed and inspired by their Christianity. Only some do. It's like, Okay, I said nothing of God can be evil, you know, and then you look at specific practices. Um, I mean, does that explain, like, the JW thing? You know, like, does anybody here care about Jehovah's Witnesses? <laughs> like, like, oh, gee, what do they think about the world? Like, I mean, for me, or like, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church, you know, or um, to, to name a uniquely freakish and depraved group of individuals, Internet Thomists. Like, does anyone care what they think about? I mean, like, no. you know, Chris, I mean, when Chris was mentioning people who stand against like sexual depravity, but support like publicly flogging thieves or something like, you know, that's who he's talking about. <laughs> but, um, yeah, exactly. But, and I mean, there's a reason like to even draw a more extreme example when people, when you have like LARPers on the internet, right. Um, adopting paganism. There's a reason you don't see people retreating to, um, traditional Aztec religions because certain cultures that include human sacrifice or certain religions that would mandate human sacrifice. That seems wrong to us. We don't think something like that would be divinely inspired or guided by God. We make those judgments all the time. And that's the thing is that those kinds of judgments about religion based on our moral intuitions, what we know morally, that's something we do all the time. It is so obvious that the fact that everybody wants to retreat and be like, ah, I want to go that far when it has to do with things like Christianity and other more 
mainline religions. I think that's served. I think that's, I think that's absurd. Okay. And just to respond to Craig, you know, um, yeah, sorry. I, I didn't see that you agreed with me on that part, but, um, Still, like, it, this is pretty frequent where I'll make the argument that Chris mentioned where I'll say, oh, if Christianity were true, it would be an aid to the pursuit of the good for oneself and others. It wouldn't be an obstacle to the pursuit of the good for oneself and for others. And yet you can point to areas of Christian theology. You can point to, you know, um, Christian leaders, you know, parts of the Bible. You can point to, uh, yeah, like areas of tradition or whatever, like things that most people wouldn't dispute are a part of Christianity. And Christianity seems to be an obstacle to something that is good. You know, it's not helping very much with, like, the abolition of slavery. Like, yes, there were, um, you know, Christian abolitionists. Um, there were also, you know, non-Christian abolitionists. But if you say, did Christianity help with the abolition of slavery? You know, like, did it really help? Like, it seemed to be just as much help to the other side, if not more so. Um, or if you think about, and I pick this controversial example sometimes, like, for a few different reasons. But I'll talk about equality, like, legal and social equality for gay people. So I chose my words carefully there. Legal and social equality for gay people. Is there anyone who would argue that Christianity was an aid to that <laughs> or like is an aid to that? No. Okay. So if you judge that legal and social equality for gay people, legal equality, meaning we don't have different laws for gay people and straight people, social equality, meaning it's not like a huge social cost if you're gay. Like it's like something that's like this horrible thing that, you know, ruins your life if it comes out or something. So it used, that used to be the case, you know, was Christianity a help or a hindrance to getting to a point where we had legal and social equality for gay people? Okay, now, it was Christianity itself that formed this obstacle, okay? It wasn't like, oh, gosh, everyone's just misunderstanding it. Like, no. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's just surprising that Christianity itself would be like an obstacle to the pursuit of the good rather than an aid to the pursuit of the good. I just want to flag, I think that Craig maybe had responded that way because a lot of times the argument gets presented like, oh, well, Christians on a whole aren't like as good as atheists. And it's like maybe even talking about something we all agree on, like like Christians don't donate more to charity than atheists do or something. And like to me, that seems like a different argument than just saying like, well, Christian by and large uh, moral teachings haven't been like ahead of their curve or something like to me, they see, they do seem like two different versions of the argument, and usually it's that first one. And I think that first one is weaker than the second one. I think is, but that's not the argument that usually gets made. So I think it is worth flagging. Well, that, I mean, I have been. You can go back to the first thing that I ever posted about this, and then the second thing, and the third thing, and the fourth thing, and I said the same thing over and over again, and it was never that. The one that you just presented, you know, the one that some that every Christian responds to as if that's what I said, like, well, you know, I've made an accurate empirical judgment about like, you know, I, I've considered every single Christian who exists and every single atheist who exists, and I've made these really accurate judgments about how they behave. And it's like, okay, so what I said was, you know, Christianity, it, it's, it's weird if Christianity is an obstacle to the pursuit of the good for oneself and for others, like, that's not what you would expect, because anything that's of God, um, is good. Anything that's of God is not going to be evil. Again, like, I don't view these as, like, radically different arguments. You know, they're all under the same meager moral fruits umbrella. They're all about the moral fruits of, you know, a particular religion or sect or whatever. Um, yeah, so I, I just don't see, I mean, yeah, there is the, the one that Paul Draper uh, popularized, I guess, like, the reason that I, like, used this because honestly, there, sometimes I think, why don't I just call it something else? And I bet a lot of people will chill out about it. Like um, in Naturalism Next, 
uh, post, you know, why I'm an atheist, he made a meager moral fruits argument, but he called it an argument from flawed religions. And no one got upset about that part. <laughs> it's like, can I just call it something else and then people won't be so mad? Um, but yeah, I mean, Draper did make that argument that you mentioned where it's like, he seemed to be making a claim. Uh, he seemed to be making an argument against theism in general. And then he was making these like pretty dramatic, like empirical, like sociological claims, essentially. And yeah, like that's like the weakest form of the argument. Um and then what I've done is, I'm just laughing at Chris right now, but I mean, the, like what I've done is I've tried to say, hey, like this argument from the moral fruits of like Christianity or of theism, like there's so much that could be done here, like so much more than like what Draper talked about. I think that he was partly constrained because he was trying to make an argument against theism and not just like a specific kind of theism. And like I said, it's so much easier once you are like, hey, this is an argument against Christianity. <laughs> um Anyway, so yeah, I, I typically am not making claims about like, uh, like th these like dramatic sociological claims. I mean, like my empirical claim was that Christianity was an obstacle to legal and social equality for gay people. What about that is controversial? Like, how does that lead to me saying, "Oh, I'm making this dramatic sociological claim"? That it's crazy for me to to make a make a claim like that. Well, like, different people defend the argument differently. So, like, you might defend it one way, and it's not always clear. And then maybe like some other people that on the stream will be posting a lot about it. That and it's defending more like along the lines of Paul Draper and his debate with William Lane Craig. And so it's a little bit confusing when they're all going under the same banner. I mean, I'm, I sad, I'm, I'm sad to tell you that it actually doesn't matter what you say because the people who respond to me, like all the people who respond to me, they never engage with what I am saying. They always just respond true. to like this like thing no, that but I I've, say. But I've talked to you. No, but, right, but I mean, I've talked to you about it off air. And I, my impression was you were going with that first argument more, or at least that that was one that you were inclined to defend. So, I mean, it's good to have clarity because like I think the argument being against like, well, why isn't Christian doctrine like the way you're framing it now, I think is a stronger argument than the other one. That's but, how I always framed it. You can go back to the yeah. first episode I made about moral fruits and I said exactly what I just said. Well, there's also like, I think Ben Watkins, he defends a version of this that almost seems like it's almost a subset of divine hiddenness in the sense where like, if God were wanting to sort of make, reveal himself to atheists, then Sure, maybe he would either do it directly personally through them in a sort of religious encounter, or maybe he would do so through, let's say, the the charitable givings or interactions that they would have with other theists. And so that's going to, I guess, lend more credence to the atheist in God's existence based upon um, Christian charity. But given the fact that we're not observing that, that's going to give us some reason to doubt that God actually does exist. And so there are different ways of articulating the argument, even within this sort of sphere. And I will, I mean, I didn't mean to get kind of pissy a second ago, Caleb, sorry about that. But like, I, I have like, you know, because I don't think Draper's argument is like terrible. I, I just think there's so much more you can do with meager moral fruits arguments, you know, and like, I mean, I don't think that Draper's argument was bad exactly. It's just like not really the strongest way of going about it. And um, I think that people are like within their epistemic rights to like make kind of weak generalizations about groups that they've had a lot of experience with. Like if you went to church like multiple times a week, like I did, you're in ministry, you know, all over the country and like you're pretty engaged in like, you know, like with like different Christians from different backgrounds. And it's like this constant central part of your life. 
are you really not in any position to make generalizations about Christians at that point? Like, I think that most people would be fine with that in other contexts. It's just when it's kind of weaponized, you know, it's the same thing as a the theological premise. Like many times I am literally repeating things that theists will say in other comment and other contexts. And then once they notice that I'm weaponizing it, then suddenly it's ridiculous and they can't believe that I would say such a thing. But um, yeah, I, I do feel like some people are in a position to like make generalizations about, about Christians. And it's like, you know, like I said, you have to, it has to be kind of a weak generalization. It has to be like made with a certain amount of humility, but to say that you're just not allowed to make generalization, you're not allowed to make claims about Christians as a group. Like, I don't think that's true either. Well, it could be that you're, well, it could be that you have been defending that. I mean, I have, I don't think I've listened to that particular video. So maybe I was assuming that your version was saying that like maybe Ben and real theology have been, you know, or, or at least my interpretation of them following the way Draper presented it. But anyways, I, I do think they are two distinct arguments. Now, you may have been totally consistent. I don't know. But I'm just saying they, they do seem like two different arguments. So maybe that's where some confusion comes in. But but anyways, I, I hope it's been clarified now and nobody will. Well, that, that's resolved forever. Can, I, uh, can you put um, that last comment on the screen for me? I actually have to leave, but it was great talking to all you guys. So uh, have, have a good rest of the stream. Bye. See you. See you. See ya. Having destroyed Christianity, he runs in fear. Coward. Um, yeah, coward. Um, <laughs> um, so this person says, does Emerson think Christianity being a hindrance to the good in specific cases is logically incompatible with Christianity being true, or is this a probabilistic argument? Um, it's definitely a probabilistic argument, um, because one thing I've learned is that basically everyone can explain everything, and like the, the bar of logical incompatibility is really hard to meet, you know? Um so I've always said, like, literally from that first video, like the meager moral fruits onward, you know, meager moral fruits argument onward, I've always said this data is compatible with Christianity. You know, like it's compatible with these different versions of theism, which is why, again, it's been funny to see people apparently not listen to me and then like do all this work just to justify that like, hey, here's a possible explanation that would render Christianity compatible with the data. Like maybe there's like a thousand years of moral development or like a million or a billion years of moral development that happens in purgatory. And then Christians are better. It's like, okay, congratulations. You just proved that, um, you know, Christianity is compatible with the data, which I never denied, never have denied, never even suggested. So anyway, it, it's just kind of funny how people will go to extreme lengths just to get to a place that I said they could get to and that like it's taken into account in the argument. <laughs> like, you know, so this goes back to like evidential complementarity. Like if the world looked one way, then that would be evidence for Christianity. And since it doesn't look that way, it's evidence against Christianity. Um, if Christians did stand out, if they, if like, you know, the world that Chris was describing earlier actually did obtain where Christians, um, you know, are kind of like leading the charge, morally speaking on every more, like every front of moral progress then um of course that would be evidence for christianity like if christians as a group were just like noticeably more moral like um i might as well just name names here because like before the before the previous episode about meager moral fruits that i had with ben watkins um i, I felt compelled to like issue this disclaimer at the beginning where i was like just so you know, like, there are plenty of Christians in my life who I morally respect, you know, like, intellectually and morally respect, and who um, I look up to, actually. And, like, one person who I had in mind was Josh Rasmussen, where it's, like, I, I can honestly say that if, like, it doesn't even have to be, it could be 30%. Like, if 30% of Christians 
were like Josh Rasmussen, then I never would have made this argument. <laughs> like, it's like, truly, like, he seems to be filled with, like, you know, the joy of the Lord, and he seems to be filled with love. And he just, like, if more people were like him, like, I would like to be more like him, you know, like, I like the way that he acts. And if more Christians, like, exhibited these kinds of fruits, then, of course, I would have to think that, like, something was going on. Like, if one out of every every three Christians I met was, like, you know, uh, Josh Rasmussen or Cornell West or something like it, that would be evidentially very interesting to me. And it might be enough to push me over the edge for some kind of pragmatic case where it's like, well, I want to be a Christian, you know, um, <laughs> like just because of uh, what it appears to like the, the moral transformation that it appears to engender. So um, anyway, yeah, it's uh, there are pl- plenty of Christians out there who I respect morally and who if more Christians were like them, I never I never would have made this argument. Um, someone, Zarla, asks, what do you think about more liberal versions of Christianity, like universalist and perennial theology? Um, like, in this context, I don't think it really changes anything. Like, it doesn't change anything about the meager moral fruits argument. Um, yeah, I mean, I like universalist Christianity. I think it's, like, by far the most plausible version. And, you know, I don't I don't even think there's, like, a negligible, you know, chance of universalist Christianity being true. Like, I you know, it seems pretty reasonable to me, but I just, I don't quite see how it bears on the, on this argument. Well, uh, like you were talking about earlier about, for example, if, um, uh, Joseph Smith wrote that, um, it's good to murder babies for fun. And if you do that, then you're in, in alignment with God. Right. That would be, I think you talked about that under meager moral fruits arguments. That would be reasons to not believe in, um, the Latter-day Saints. Right. I think you could sort of make an analogous argument that, well, all of these uh, versions of Christianity that are advancing ECT are obviously false, right? Because this is obviously a moral evil, and nothing that's of God is evil, right? And ones that push universalism would just be able to avoid that issue, right? So that if a if a religion or if a version of Christianity, along with like we talked about being a force of good in the world and all the other facets of the argument, if it also fulfills being a universalist. Uh, universalism-based faith, that would, I think, lend credence towards its direction. So I think it would impact the argument a little bit, but not much. The other factors obviously still stand. Yeah, like David Bentley Hart characterizes teaching eternal conscious torment. He sometimes characterizes it as psychological terrorism. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I think that that's a good point. It's just like, of all the problems with eternal conscious torment, like, I guess it just never comes up because there's so many more like significant problems. But um. Yeah, no, I, I guess there has been, I, I guess you could consider that, like, yeah, like in this category of moral fruits, but um, yeah, I had never thought of that. All right, well, obviously more can be said on this, um, but I don't want the stream to go super long, so if you guys had, like, some partying words, I did link your channels and Chris's blog um, in the description, but I don't know if you guys had some parting thoughts or not. <laughs> yeah, I invite any theist to um, respond to me on um, Twitter to try and debunk me, you will fail and it will be sad and I will enjoy it. <laughs> but I uh, really though, I do want more feedback on this argument. If any Christian wants to um, discuss with me on it, point out some things that you think don't work, ask questions, atheist Christian, I want more dialogue in the argument. So um, yeah, I just want to throw that out there. Um, I have something to say to you. It's a fallacy. I've never it, committed a fallacy in my entire it's life. It's a blatant <laughs> appeal to emotion fallacy. Well, you just did that hominem, so I'm not exactly sure what leverage you're trying to have on me here. 
shit. Um, okay, I'll get back. Caleb said we have to go, so I, I would name another fallacy that you yeah. committed, but we do have to leave. There's a lot of fallacies. It's too late. You're already, you're already a casualty on the battlefield of ideas. <laughs> I'm just happy to hear you advocating for equality of opportunity. Yeah, me too. It's been a it's been a tough shift, but I've finally adopted, you know, um, Tom Holland-esque liberalism. And despite Christianity being false, it's necessary as a force of good in the world, because otherwise I would never know that eating people is wrong. No. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go now. <laughs> All right. Thanks for watching, people, and have a good night.